welcome to the Old Soul Movie Podcast, your number one spot for classic movie rewatches and breakdowns. My name is Jack Oremus, and I'm here with my sister, Emma Oremus. We decided that we wanted to make a show that reflected our love and appreciation for classic movies. And while you're here, hopefully we can share that together as an Old Soul family. We're going to be diving into these movies scene by scene and giving our modern reactions to the films that have influenced generations of people. There will be fun facts, hot takes, tears, laughter, and everything in between. And with that being said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Old Soul Movie Podcast. We had quite the hiatus this last month, but we are excited to get back into the swing of things. And we are going to come back really hot with uh, a little podcast about Otto Preminger. Emma, how are you today? I am doing well. However, the state of the world has not improved. Unfortunately, the entertainment industry has lost several stars in this past week, including Naya Rivera, Kelly Preston, and Grant Imahara. And yeah, it's terrible. There's just a very sad energy going around. Such terrible losses. Naya Rivera playing a trailblazing LGBTQ character on Glee. Kelly Preston in so many well-known and beloved movies such a delight to the screen. Grant is, of course, a childhood hero with his myth-busting. So it's it's been very, very sad. But we are very excited to get back into recording and going through some movies and some other film-related topics of interest. So get excited. And we got a very special request from one of our listeners, And we will be covering that movie next week. Let's see if you can guess it by the end of this episode. But we thought that we would cover the director of that movie first to give us a little bit of a background on the perspective in which that film was created. Exactly. And so, uh, yes, with that, Otto Preminger, very, very exciting, very well-renowned director. Emma, do you want to get into his background a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And I will say, so it was really interesting because... When I was kind of doing a little preliminary research on the movie we're going to do next, I was thinking, gosh, like I know a lot of Otto Preminger movies and I'm definitely aware of his work, but I don't really know him as a person very well and his background. So I had a great time personally, way, way more fun than I thought I'd have researching this guy. And I've got to say, after reading up on him, I feel like his whole Hollywood career is just a page out of the Game of Thrones political landscape. It really <laughs> is. He he's lived quite the life, which you will all listen to and see by the end of this episode. <laughs> yeah, very much a power struggle here and there. So here we go. Otto Preminger was born December 5th, 1905 in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But today that area is part of the Ukraine. And he was born to a Jewish family. And then during World War I, Russia invaded their land and then they moved to Austria. Oh, and he also had a younger brother. And there was a lot of conflicts and pressure with conversions to Catholicism. 
his dad, who was a lawyer, was offered a job on the basis that he would convert to Catholicism. He did not. Otto was enrolled into a school that emphasized Catholicism values and whatnot. And what's really interesting, and I think this will come into play later, is a director. But Preminger's dad was a lawyer, right? And I think that really influenced his vision and being able to see multiple perspectives. His dad was very much about, okay, you have your side, but then there's a whole other side. And I think that that multi-layered viewpoint of things ends up becoming incorporated into the whole way he directs his characters. And the, and just the the topics, I think, that he chooses to, to discuss. And- Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, cover in his movies. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we'll get into later that is very atypical, I think, for the time. But it's going to be a lot of fun talking about some of those things. Yeah, there's there's a lot, but we'll definitely get into it. Stay tuned. Basically, a lot of taboo things. Yeah, so as a teenager, that's when he became interested in plays and the stage. And at 17, he learned that there was a theater company opening and he tried to get an audition, and he thought he never heard back, but lo and behold, he just never got the letter. Eventually, he did end up working in that theater company under Max Reiner, who is an Austrian theater and film director. He made several German-language films, which is, again, throwback to our LGBTQ podcast. German films were like it. The most progressive. <laughs> yes, in the 1910-ish years. And he was also attending college at the time. And I believe he got a law degree himself, which is pretty cool. He ended up leaving Reinhardt's group because he only received minor roles. And he was like, I'm over that. So he left them and became involved with a lot more risque content plays in the Czech Republic. All these plays covered topics along anything from sex to communism. Wild stuff for the time. But again, you're already seeing that budding interest of, no, I want to tackle some life stuff. Some real stuff. Real stuff. Heavier, heavier yeah. things. But also, God, what I, I, I'm already picturing this guy as a, you know, whatever, t- teens, late teens, 20s. I see this cocky guy that's like, I'm too good for being the vacuum cleaner guy or whatever. I don't know. He, he was like the, the um, furniture mover. Or, or, yeah, right. that was it. I love how he, like, you're already getting this little spitfire attitude from this guy. Mm-hmm. So like interesting. Like what he would memorize all these monologues and recite them and he would always try to get some sort of audience for it. But mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, so already we're, we're getting a picture of this guy. And then in 1930, a wealthy industrialist offered Preminger a chance to direct a film and he accepted, even though he wasn't super into films. He did prefer the theater, but the film got amazing reviews, which of course caught some attention overseas. Which is crazy to think that he was 25 when he directed that. So extremely young. I wonder how that director or how that industrialist came in contact with him at the beginning or like how those connections, that's what I always wonder about is just how were those connections sort of made. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter. As long as he can go through and uh, really just do the job, execute, that's all that matters. So, Right? Yeah, very lucky, good break there. So, and then this fateful encounter happened, which 
plunged him into the Hollywood scene. In April 1935, Joseph Schneck and Daryl F. Zunek asked to meet with Preminger because they were looking for a new talent to add to their production company, which was 20th Century Fox. Now, if those names sound familiar or if they don't at all, Schneck and Zunek were major players in launching Marilyn Monroe's career. Zunek even picked Marilyn as the first name for her stage name of Marilyn Monroe. And let's not forget, 1935, 20th Century Fox then becomes one of the big five studios. And that lasts from about 1935 to 2019. Of course, in 2019, they became part of the Walt Disney Studios Corporation. So on January 17th, 2020, they became 20th Century Studios and operate under Disney. I was going to say, can we just take a minute to realize how crazy that is, that it's almost been a hundred years, almost, you know, we're like 15 years away from it. So (laughs) just to think about how long these companies have been in the game and very long time. I mean, these people were pretty much at the forefront of everything happening. So to me, it just makes me wonder how the next hundred years are going to go and what that's going to look like. But I feel like a lot of the changes that happen in life or the things that occur really happen in cycles of like a hundred years. And so I'm thinking that there's going to be some type of renaissance personally, probably not with 20th century, but I mean, maybe it includes Walt Disney. I don't know. It will be interesting to see how things go as we as a society and culture progress. And I mean, again, like we've kind of talked about before, we really had to make sure Hollywood didn't become a monopoly here and there. So I think, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where these studios are headed in the future. But yeah, Disney is a powerhouse. I can say that for sure. So Preminger was down. He was like, yeah, I'll work for Vox. So he did a few projects. He directed Lawrence Tibbet, the opera singer. He did a screwball comedy. And already right away, he established a reputation for a very good work ethic of filming on time and staying within or under budget. So that's going to get you more oh, jobs. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and this, is, this, is, this is the kicker here. So in 1938... He was assigned to a movie called Kidnapped, which I believe takes place in Scotland. He was already having some reservations because he's not native. I don't know if they filmed there or not, but basically there was this culture clash worry he had as him being the director. Zanuck was super ticked off because he didn't think Preminger was doing the scene as it was written. And Preminger was like, uh, yeah, I did. And then a major fight ensued. Like the next day, Preminger's name was taken off the office door and his lock was changed. And he was left uncredited for the movie, Kidnapped. Yeah, it was very complicated because back then, directors, actors, what have you, had very long contracts with studios. And when your studio fires you, oh my gosh, what are you going to do? So he had a two-year deal and then was looking for compensation for the rest of his deal and wasn't getting it. It was not good. So after arriving in Hollywood two years prior, he then became fired and was unemployed. That, that to me is kind of crazy though. Like just because one scene wasn't being filmed the quote right way, like there had to be some underlying 
issues and tensions between Zanuck and Preminger. Like to me, there just has to be some some type of other issue going on. I think it, there's there's absolutely probably something going on. I can already tell you. I don't know Preminger at all as a person. I don't know him. I've never met Zanuck. I don't know these guys, but I can tell you that we've got some strong personalities here. Oh, oh yeah. And I'm sure this was just the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, not good. And this rivalry is not over yet, people. So hang in there. But this left Preminger in a really awkward position of, gosh, I can't, you know, what am I going to do for work? So he returned to his first love of the stage in New York City. He worked with the Barrymores and he taught drama at Yale. So pretty good solution to your problem. Yeah. So here we go. Meanwhile, back in Hollywood, Zanuck, who was a veteran of World War I, decided to join the United States military effort in World War II. William Goetz then, who was the vice president of 20th Century Fox, took charge of the studio in 1942, replacing Zanuck as he was serving in the war. So basically, Goetz was like just taking a temporary hold of the company while the guy was off fighting for our country. Goetz really liked the top role in the company. Zanuck comes back and needless to say, the relationship is strained. And to add to that, Goetz was super impressed with Preminger and offered him a seven-year dual directing and acting contract. Wow. Yeah. First of all, Again, I don't know whose side I am in all this because I don't know them personally. But could you imagine going off to war and coming back to your company and your mortal enemy is hired for a seven-year contract and you have to deal with them for however much time or longer? Oh, I'd be furious. I'd be furious. Pretty prominent deal. Yeah. I mean, could you even imagine? So I'm sure that Goetz adding Preminger back for a seven-year deal didn't help their relationship. Lots of tension. Again, Preminger started directing again. He was known for a very good work ethic still. Like many German and Austrian immigrants, he played a Nazi on screen. Those were the roles available for immigrants. Yeah, so that kind of worked out for him. And then Preminger's like, Man, I got to turn out as many movies as I can before Zanuck gets back. One of them being Army Wives, which focused on the impact of war on women on the home front. So very cool. We're already getting a little feministy perspective there. So nice. And then we have Laura, 1944. Unfortunately, Zanuck got back from the war just in the nick of time to halt Preminger from being the director of Laura. So he was then made producer instead. And the prolific Ruben Mamoulian was set to direct this movie. See how this political strategy ter- yeah, turns so, out. <laughs> so Zanuck didn't get his old job back, right? Like he-, he he actually did, but tensions were strained because all of these changes that he never would have made right. personally were made. So he's dealing with all of this stuff. And now your enemy number one is now the person you have to put up with all the time. So crazy. Interesting about Laura, the unknowns at the time, beautiful Jean Tierney and Dana Andrews were cast in the film. And 
this is where this was like a key little Game of Thrones political war battle strategy comes in. So Mamoulian wants this one guy for the villain. Preminger wants a different guy for the villain. And so Preminger's actor Clifton Webb succeeded in his screen test and was then cast. Preminger being producer, so being the person kind of overseeing overseeing everything, everything. having creative differences with the director, then led to Mamoulian being fired and Preminger putting himself in as director. That was a terrible move on Zanuck's part to be like, oh, we're not going to make you director. We're going to make you producer. But then as the producer, then you can be like, oh, this isn't working for me. I'll just direct it. I'm just going to yeah. do what I want to do. I, I don't know. I, I just what was well Zanuck, What was Zanuck thinking there? I like, what did he no think was going to happen? <laughs> no idea. I bet he thought he was going to be like a junior producer, just like be like, check, check, yes. But well played on Preminger's part. Kudos to you. So then Laura was released and it became a major hit. Today it is considered one of the best film noirs of all time. Preminger received his first Academy Award nomination for Best Director for this film. And it was a huge gateway into getting him more and better opportunities. And then Zanuck, however, was basically still in charge of Preminger and decided to assign him with some sinking ship projects. And one of them being Ernst Lubitsch, who's a director. He had a heart attack and was recovering, I believe. He had a film that he was making. All the prep work had been done. It had been cast. Everything was set to go. All Preminger had to do was just carry it out. And he was like, nah, nah, thanks. I'm going to make this mine. Although it was already casted, he decided to put in our dear favorite Tallulah Bankhead in the movie. The dangerous Tallulah Bankhead. (laughs) Exactly. Now remember, now this is important. Remember when Preminger had to move to New York because he was basically exiled out of Hollywood? He met our stage actress, Tallulah Bankhead, and they worked together in New York. And that's what brought her on board. So it basically came full circle and Zanuck wanting one thing to go one way because he fired him initially and it shoved him out to New York. He makes this connection and he's infiltrating Hollywood with his connection. It's just mind blowing to me. So it, it's like the Roadrunner in Wiley e. Coyote. <laughs> like <laughs> every Crazy. time every, every time the coyote thinks he has the leg up or the advantage, or Tom and Jerry, whatever <laughs> I guess metaphor you want to pick. But it, it's just funny how Preminger just always comes back and puts a spin <laughs> on it to like put it to his advantage. I love it. It's it's just hilarious. It's insane. Interestingly enough. Preminger's family was not able to come to the U.S. because of immigration laws. Again, World War II, you know, there's tension there with immigration. Tallulah Bankhead's father, if we can remember from our LGBTQ podcast, was the Speaker of the House and got them into the country because of his political connection or because of her political connection. And boom, an alliance was formed between Preminger and Tallulah Bankhead. So the movie, instead of bringing Greta Garbo out of retirement and reinvigorating her career, became a credit for Tallulah Bankhead's career in the film industry. I would not be surprised if Preminger had connections to the president of the United States at this point. It seems like he could find something just like out of thin air and (laughs) kind of make whatever he wants to happen, happen. It's amazing. If I was Zanuck, I'd just be like, you know what? (laughs) Do whatever you want. Maybe he would crumble with more freedom. 
it seems like he really excels in positions where he's like up against the wall and has to come up with some yeah. type of, I don't know, like <laughs> escape. If he is given a box, he yeah. will find his way out of that box. That's what's fascinating about him. And we'll kind of get into his personality later. But like, I'm just, I am in such admiration of a guy that's just like, oh, so you're saying I can only do this or can't do this. I'm actually going to prove you wrong and do what I want to do anyway, which I think is a dual edged sword. I think that that's very cool, but also can win you a lot of enemies. So yeah, I, don't it, know. I can totally see Preminger and Tula Bankhead also being complete besties like their personalities i I don't know just reading about how he kind of lived sort of a more bachelor lifestyle Tallulah being Tallulah if you guys haven't listened to the lgbtq podcast she was crazy she was like on another level party animal she put the roar in the roaring 20s (laughs) very modern modern woman oh yeah yeah so these two i'm sure they uh got along quite nicely yeah. What a team. Zanuck didn't see that one coming. <laughs> yeah. So then Preminger went on to direct Fallen Angel in 1945, which is another very well-known film noir. And he also directed Centennial Summer in 1946, which was his first fully colorized film. So making strides there. He was super, super well-known for being a major challenger to the production code and to HUAC's Hollywood Blacklist couple examples he was assigned to the movie forever amber again there's more attention behind the scenes with who zanuck wants for it what preminger wants for it yikes but what's interesting about this movie is that it's about an unmarried woman who has a baby and it really glamorizes the whole concept the movie was immediately condemned by the catholic league of decency which remember that from the lgbtq podcast no surprises there. And Preminger really didn't like the movie, but I will say he's willing to tackle something that's a little taboo at the time. So the other, and this this is really, to me, interesting. This is a great example of him going against the production code. Preminger did a movie called The Blue Moon in 1953, and it's based off of a play in the dialogue There is a lot of words that don't bode well with the production code. The production code even rejected the script on January 2nd, 1952, citing that it was unacceptably light attitude towards seduction, illicit sex, chastity, and virginity. So production code is like, no, you're not making this. And Preminger refused to take out the words virgin, mistress, and pregnant. So what did he decide to do? He released the movie without production code approval. Full send. Full send. (laughs) Yeah. So I know some of you following along with us might be like, what? You can't release the movie without the production code's approval in 1953. (laughs) To that I say, you can, but your issue is, is that it's not going to be as widely distributed. So what they did for this movie was it was really only shown in urban theaters And when they did do showings, it had to be adult-only viewings. And many, many times it it had to be all-male or all-female audiences. It couldn't be a mixed audience, which is like kind of so like... Could you imagine that happening today? (laughs) Stupid. (laughs) Just me and the boys going to go see the moon is blue. Be back later, honey. (laughs) Do they think that they're like not going to talk? I see it's a very prehistoric attempt here to keep 
people chased. I, I, I don't, I feel like it was really dumb to think that that would work, but okay. <laughs> Listen, Harry, we separate <laughs> the males from the females. Right? <laughs> Men folk don't talk with women folk. <laughs> Did you see the moon is blue, honey? Of course not, dear. <laughs> yeah, this is a, this is a crazy concept to think about like <laughs> nearly what, 70 years later. Oh my yeah. goodness. It's crazy. Oh my gosh. It really is insane. But yeah, I, I love that he's already rejecting this standard of you have to do this. And he's like, I actually don't. So very cool. And then he went on to make a movie called The Man with the Golden Arm in 1955, which is about a drug addict played by Frank Sinatra who gets clean while he's in prison and then struggles to stay clean outside of prison. In the novel, it's morphine, but in the movie, it's strongly implied to be heroin again because of the code, which was which did approve of this. We can't use the name of a drug or the slang on screen, but it became one of the first Hollywood films to portray heroin addiction on screen. And I think a strip club. I think that the Kim Novak character in that runs a strip club. But wow, I mean, 1955, holy smokes. That's like actually really early for showing addiction, heroin addiction, not alcohol addiction. And I have to say, I think that this is such a meaningful movie. I mean, it's such a prevalent issue in society today. And to bring that to light and make that concept that this is a real struggle accessible to audiences in 1955, I, for one, am grateful that he had the courage to be like, we need to tell this story. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it sheds a light on, I think, serious topics rather than something like Father Knows Best or like, <laughs> I don't know, when Leave it to Beaver came out. But I guess those sort of all-American, very wholesome topics that are very safe. Right. It's, it's cool to see the norm being broken here. And again, we get that like, <laughs> debate about the code and if it, that's the... If, crazy thing about older movies is a lot of people like them because it's hard to be offended by them because they were made to be that way. However, you're getting censored content and you're not getting the full context of the problem maybe that someone's actually having. So to be able to portray that in art and have that there for someone that needs that and can't read between the lines to me is very important. So I think that that's cool. Later, he did Anatomy of a Murder in 1959. And it, this was a big one because it included very blatant, clear discussions about rape and sex. And the censors did object to the words rape, sperm, sexual climax, and penetration. Preminger did decide to compromise and he substituted violation for penetration. <laughs> <laughs> I, to me, that's not even the worst one. We got into even... an entanglement. <laughs> In the words of Jada Smith. Yeah, very interesting. (laughs) Jada Smith. Wow. Okay. And so the picture was released with the MPAA approval, which was essentially the beginning of the end of the production code. Keep in mind, this came out in 1959, same year as Some Like It Hot. So 1959 to me is just like, okay, death to the production code. This Mm -hmm. This is one of those movies. And Blacklist, Preminger decided to do a major taboo and hired blacklisted Dalton Trumbow, who's extremely talented as the screenwriter for his movie Exodus, which was released in 1960. And then he directed Carmen Jones in 1954, which we mentioned in our black cinema history episode. And that is a musical that features an all black cast. 
And knowing that no one was interested in producing it, a musical with an all-black cast, he decided to produce it independently, which is really, really awesome. Very cool. And then he also did Advise and Consent in 1962, which features a gay character struggling with his sexual identity. Well, again, we covered this one in, in our last episode, our LGBTQ episode. And this is one of the movies that was in the realm of a gay character struggling with their identity and taking their own life. That falls into that category. But I just want to point out that like a couple of these movies were part of our kind of educational series of the progress in Hollywood. And he was attached to both movies advancing that of black actors and right. movies advancing the stories of LGBTQ characters. That's insane that he is attached to both of our highlights on progressiveness yeah. in Hollywood. Decades before it was really accepted and embraced by society. That's, yeah, very cool. And again, you can love him or hate him. He probably was a little bit of a difficult person to be around just based off of him being like, I'm going to do whatever I want all the time. But, you know, if that power was placed in the hands of someone willing to take those chances to help us see our whole world and not just a world that we want to fit people into. I don't know if that makes sense. And by that, I mean a white heteronormative cisgendered world. We're, we're throwing ma- out all the world. words at you guys right now. But, yeah. <laughs> um, I also think it's pretty interesting and maybe it goes into why he is sort of the way he is that he's not American. So mm-hmm. he does bring this, I guess, different cultural flair, maybe European acceptance or European openness, whatever the case is, whatever, I don't know, can explain it. But I he think- He also has a law yeah. background. Hey, there's your, your opposition has feelings too, my friend. Right. There's two sides to every story. So right. I think it's very cool that he was able to advance these topics and just do it himself when he needed to do it. I think that's a, that's an awesome trait to have. Yeah. He's definitely an independent one. That's for sure. Personal life. Um, very, very, I don't even know, messy, strange out there, Fun, but yeah. And on, so kind of backtracking on August 3rd, 1932, he married a Hungarian woman named Marion Mill and the couple married 30 minutes after her divorce was finalized to her previous husband. So don't, don't they worry, were... guys. They they met after they were divorced. So, you know, they <laughs> fell in love within 20 minutes, decided to get married in five, and then, you know, filled it up with the rest. But yeah, <laughs> they did not know each other before. <laughs> right. I'm sure there was no extramarital issues at all. Oh, no. <laughs> like totally going on there. He worked with Laurence Olivier and Adam West, Adam West in the Batman series, which is, I had no idea that Preminger played Mr. Freeze. What? So cool. <laughs> I, cause we used to watch that growing up and we I'm did. like, what? Yeah. He was the original Mr. Freeze, which is actually really crazy. Cool. And both of those individuals found Preminger to be quote unquote, a bully, which I, I see it. I, I can see that. I think he sees things his way. But, and again, dual-edged sword. I think in some things that was a good trait. Some things that might have been garnered you the nickname of being a bully. So he and his wife, Marion, remained married, but they kind of grew apart. He ended up having an affair with Gypsy Rose Lee. If that name sounds familiar, Natalie Wood played the character based off of her in the movie Gypsy. He had a baby with Gypsy Rose Lee. 
but she requested that he not reveal his paternity, and he did not meet his son with Gypsy Rosalie until 1966, when I think the son was 22. Very long time. Then, while filming Carmen Jones, he started a four-year affair with the lead Dorothy Dandridge, and he started advising her with some of her career decisions, several of those choices of which she regretted going along with, including turning down a role in The King and I. Another little fun tidbit, he is the brother of producer Ingo Preminger, who is the producer of M.A.S.H. And I believe M.A.S.H. actually does include a reference to the moon is blue. So if you ever thought that was random, there's a connection there for our M.A.S.H. fans. And then Preminger died in his home in Manhattan in 1986 when he was 80 years old. He died of lung cancer while also suffering from Alzheimer's disease. So very full, full life, very long career. I mean, let's even go back to his theater days. What he like that would have been 17 years old. Yeah, yeah, 17 years old to 80. That's very long time to be doing what you love. So Awesome. A couple of notes about him as a director. So he is known for his fluid camera movements and very long takes. So when we do our movie next week, keep an eye out for that directorial style. We've been alluding to the fact that we're going to do one of his movies next week. Emma, do you just want to let everyone know which one that's going to be and why they should be hyped for it? Yes. Next week we are doing drum roll, please. We are doing Anatomy of a Murder. Thank you so much to our listener request for that. I am very excited to cover this movie. This is one I actually, I was like, oh, I've never seen it. And then I started watching it. I'm like, wait, I have seen this, but I've only seen parts of the beginning and parts of the trial. I've never watched this movie in full. So for me, it'll be a brand new experience. So I'm really excited to sit down and watch the full thing in its totality. And for me, I mean... You may have guessed it, you may have not, but I have not seen it either. So um, so it's going to be very fun for me as well. Can't wait. Jimmy Stewart's in it. I love him. So, uh, and uh, Lee Remick, who I also think she's a dynamite actress. So yeah, it's again, I think like we mentioned earlier in this podcast, a lot of very different language for the time it came out in. So I'm definitely excited to see how it's shows up on screen in consideration of an audience from a different decade. So very awesome. But that being said, this is why we should be excited for Anatomy of a Murder. It was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture, which is pretty darn cool. Yeah, Preminger was also nominated twice for Best Director, one of them being Laura, like we mentioned, the other one being The Cardinal. And he also won the Bronze Berlin Bear Award for the film Carmen Jones at the 5th Berlin International Film Festival. And this is actually, to me, one of the most interesting little fun facts about him. He directed nine different actors in their Oscar-nominated performances, including Clifton Webb, Maggie McNamara, Dorothy Dandridge, Frank Sinatra, Jimmy Stewart, Arthur O'Connell, George C. Scott, Sal Mineo, and John Huston. To me, that speaks almost louder to someone's directing ability than your picture just being best picture. The fact that you can work with your actors and uplift them to perform at their highest level. I don't know. I just think that there's something that really speaks to someone's ability to direct 
when you can help lift them up and work with them to achieve a character that really shows up well in the story. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what separates the good directors from the great ones and his resume speaks for itself. So can't wait to see one of his movies in action. It's going to be a lot of fun. Between the lifelong maybe feud with Zanuck and <laughs> the exile and coming back, all of this stuff that he accomplished. It's really insane. It's an epic and life. I'm, epic life. <laughs> yeah. I'm very grateful for him for breaking barriers in days where there was a lot of censorship and oppression and lack of more of a lack of acceptance, if you will. So I just think it's very cool that he stuck to his guns and believed in things that other people were maybe too scared or didn't see the merit in. Yeah. So I appreciate him and what he contributed. So I'm very excited for our film next week and yeah, stay tuned until then. Yeah. In the meantime, guys, be free to check out our social media, Old Soul Movie Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, reach out to us, maybe mention us in a story. Your your picks might get uh, selected for us to, to cover. Check us out on Facebook as well. But yeah, no, feel free to uh, hit us up. We're uh, keeping busy during quarantine. Hope you are too. Hang in there, everyone. Emma, do you have anything else to add on? Nope. Just get excited for next week, everyone. going to be fun. All right, guys. Until next time. Take care.